Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here. We have two readings today, one from the Psalms and one from the Gospel of John. The Psalm reading today is unique in many ways. It is a hymn psalm, the longest psalm, and an acrostic poem in which each set of eight verses begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It is known as the Psalms of the Law, and the theme of the verses is the prayer of the one who delights in and lives by the Torah, the sacred law. Within the framework of the fourth gospel's theology, Our reading today from John underscores the writer's emphasis on the incarnation and Jesus being the full and complete revelation of God. The close connection between Jesus and the Spirit is made clear in the Gospel. And John offers a particular understanding of the Spirit as continuing the ongoing presence and revelation of Jesus within the Christian community. Hear now from Psalm 19. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And from John 16, hear these words. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, that spirit will guide you into all the truth. For spirit will not speak independently, but will speak whatever the spirit hears and will declare to you the things that are to come. The spirit will glorify me by taking what is mine and declaring it to you. May God bless the reading the hearing, and the doing of this holy word. Amen. Why the Bible? What even is the Bible? How has one of the most inspiring and enduring texts ever written also become one of the most controversial and contested books ever interpreted? A.J. Jacobs, a journalist for Esquire magazine, undertook an unlikely quest uh, several years ago. Jacobs set out to live what he called the ultimate biblical life by following the Bible as literally as possible. To obey the Ten Commandments, to be fruitful and multiply, to love his neighbor, to tithe his income, but also to follow the often neglected 
uh, rules of Scripture. He wanted to obey the entire Bible without picking and choosing. And he did this for an entire year. It got really complicated really quickly. Since the ancient Levitical law prohibits wearing uh, clothes of mixed fibers, Jacob's had to give away most of his wardrobe. And because the Bible prohibits men from trimming their beards, he grew out his until it was alarmingly shaggy and frightening to small children. He carried pebbles in his pockets so he could stone people who were working on the Sabbath. And he tried to give money away to, uh, to widows in public places. He said he struggled especially with the commandment not to lie. He says, man, do I lie a lot. He said, I knew I lied a lot, but when I started to keep track, the quantity was alarming. He said he, he gave a fake email address to a magazine to avoid getting swamped by junk email. He told a friend of his that writes children's books. He said that his two-year-old son loved that book, even though they never once even cracked it open. And he said he frequently lied to his son. He would say, just one more bite, and his son would take one more bite, and then he'd say, just one more bite. <laughs> For Jacob's, the year of living biblically explored the complicated topic of biblical interpretation, in particular, especially literalism, which raises a great question for you. How do you read the Bible? You. According to a recent poll, 20% of Americans believe the Bible should be taken literally. 29% believe the Bible is a collection of fables and history and moral precepts recorded by humans. 49% believe the Bible is inspired by God, but not to be taken literally. How we read the Bible is a really big deal because it shapes our attitudes and our opinions on everything from Middle East policies, stem cell research, education and science, to homosexuality, abortion, euthanasia, climate change, rules about dancing and gambling and getting tattoos, to weird laws about buying cars or Cabernet on Sundays. All of which is really odd, isn't it? Because the Bible actually says nothing definitive about any of those particular issues. Why the Bible? It's our question today as we continue our Why Christian series because I'm pretty sure that Christians have a problem with the Bible. We don't all agree on what it is or where it comes from or how to read it or how to understand its truth or how to stand under its timeless wisdom. Maybe our Bible problem is why Christians have this checkered past when it comes to interpreting and practicing it. The Bible has been used to justify genocide, crusades, inquisition, the, the transatlantic slave trade, witch trials. It's been used to condemn entire groups of people, to dispute science, to deny the history of the universe, and to support political agendas of leaders both here and around the world. 
why do so many people today have a serious problem with Christianity? I think it's because so many Christians have a serious problem with the Bible. 81% of Americans, as we've seen throughout this series, 81% of Americans report a belief in God that's down from 87% just five years ago. But only about half of all Americans believe in, quote, the God of the Bible. And less than two-thirds of American young adults believe in the God of the Bible. The Bible is quickly falling out of favor for a growing number of people. So what is the Bible? The two most common answers for Christians to that question generally fall into two distinct views. The inspired word of God and the inerrant word of God. And the distinction between the two is mostly found in the literal meaning of the words themselves. Inspired, that literally means spirit or God breathed, God breathed. So to say the Bible is the inspired word of God is to acknowledge that the Bible uh, didn't actually fall from heaven in a one-volume package of 66 books with the title, The Holy Bible, embossed in gold on the cover. This may be news for some, but um, this is a really important detail. Each book of the Bible was written by real humans, each in their own unique historical geopolitical context. And each author was trying deeply and faithfully to listen to God. And what they heard and recorded in their own particular time and place over the course of about 1,500 years, what they heard was profoundly inspired, influenced by the Spirit, who guided their listening and their writing process. This view of Scripture as the inspired Word of God is, in fact, a biblical claim. You will find it in the book of 2 Timothy, where it says every scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for showing mistakes, for correcting, and for training character. Now, inerrant, on the other hand, literally means without error. And to claim that the Bible is the inerrant word of God is to assert that that those real, imperfect human beings who were listening to God heard everything revealed by God to them perfectly. And then they recorded that revelation with factual and historical, even scientific accuracy. Flawlessly. For all time. Just as God intended now, this view of Scripture as the inerrant Word of God isn't found anywhere in Hebrew or uh, Christian Scripture. It is not biblical. This idea is a late addition to the Christian tradition by fundamentalists in the 19th century who loved God and loved their Bible and heard the claims of Charles Darwin as it related to evolutionary biology, they heard that as a threat and a contradiction to the first chapter of Genesis, 
which describes the creation of the world in seven days. The inerrancy view of Scripture, it represents a very small minority, about 20% of all Christians today. And yet it has hijacked Christianity for more than 200 years. As a pastor, I have witnessed this and the harm that it's done. I've even experienced it. Years ago, in the first church I was pastoring, a new church started in California. There was a family I cared deeply about, a young family with young kids, and they had this 12-year-old daughter who requested to come to my office to meet with me to discuss what I later learned was my faulty view of the Bible. This little girl was was going to a private Christian school, actually right across the street from my church. A church that in their curriculum rejected evolutionary biology in favor of creationism. And she marched confidently into my office to cross-examine me while her parents remained in the car outside. She sat down and asked me one question. Do you believe in dinosaurs? And I didn't see this one coming. (laughs) I said kindly, sweetheart, I don't believe in dinosaurs. But I do believe the fossil record proves that dinosaurs actually existed about 230 million years ago. And I'm sorry, honey, what's your question? This 12-year-old proceeded then to school me, quoting scripture, questioning my credentials, claiming I didn't really believe in the Bible before storming out, just as her parents, I am sure, had intended all along. What is the Bible? In a nutshell, the Bible is the word of God in the words of humans. And what is that word of God? It is not the words themselves. It is not even the verses themselves. The word of God is the overarching narrative, the the big universal message we hear when we dare to string all those words and verses together. And when we do that, What we hear is God's call to humanity spoken to us over time and through all space. What we hear is this sacred summons, the divine signal, if you will, beaconing out to all humanity saying, you could become this. That's the word of God. It's, it's like a signal that all those biblical writers heard and recorded and grappled with over 1,500 years. You could become this. They heard the signal. They charted its coordinates. They, they measured its frequency. They recorded its pulsing through history. And what they all agreed upon was that God was signaling to them, holding out this sacred summons before them saying you could become this and what is the this that we can become it's not that we can become more religious it's not that we can become better Methodists 
It's not that we become more self-righteous or more certain or, or more pious. When we read the Bible, not just the parts of the Bible, when we read the whole of the Bible, it all says you can become more loving, more honest, more generous, more kind, more just, more whole, more human, more awakened to the divine in the world. That's what all those writers were saying in their own time. What is the Bible? The Bible is God's summons, the divine beacon, the sacred signal sounded throughout human history, beaming out over the airwaves of the universe and then transcribed into poetry, into proverbs, into songs and letters and histories and herstories and psalms and songs and laments and prayers. The Bible is this beautiful product of years and years of people just like you who sat around campfires and on shorelines and in courtyards under the stars. They gathered in tents, in homes, on mountaintops, in boats and synagogues, all trying to hear and discuss and debate and synthesize and record that divine signal in their own real lived experience in the world. And they all said, it seems to be saying, you can become this. The book of Genesis, the first chapter says, that beacon was signaled at the very beginning of time. It's what formed the world. And eventually, humans got around to tuning it in and hearing it and then recording it. Before a single book of the Bible was ever written on a page, humans rebroadcast that signal through themselves, through spoken word, through oral tradition. And before the Bible ever became a collection of 66 books, the Bible really was more like a nomadic, disjointed collection of manuscripts and, 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 and scrolls and fragments of papyrus. And before it ever became the authoritative canon that we call it today, the Bible was this evolving often contested compilation of sacred writings, many of which were included and then excluded and then re-included back into the Bible. Why? Because for certain people at certain times the divine signal, it got weak. And then people began to tune back into it again. It wasn't until the fifth century that all the Christian communities came together and reached a basic agreement on which books would constitute that divine signal in the form of the Bible that we have today. And which of the dozens and dozens of sacred writings would not make the final cut? The Word of God is, is the words of humans it is the beacon, the divine signal that still draws you and me toward the source, calling to each of us, saying, you can become this. Which means the question for us is not really what is the Bible for us 
As in, is it infallible? Is it perfect? Is it factual, inerrant? The real question for us is, what is the Bible doing in us? When we read it and grapple with it and debate it and are challenged by it, are we becoming the people that it's calling us to be? And that's the question Jesus asked himself when he read Scripture. Jesus was not a biblical literalist. He knew the Torah and the prophets, which at the time constituted for all Jews the Bible. And he loved his Bible. But his question was never, am I fulfilling the Bible? His question was, is the Bible being fulfilled through me? For Jesus, the divine beacon was so overwhelmingly strong that he could hear the call of the commandments. He could hear the ancient prophets calling into justice. And it was all saying, Jesus, you can become this. And one day, Jesus said yes to it. He couldn't resist it any longer. And there's a story in the Gospel of Luke in which Jesus responds to that call and goes to church. He shows up in a synagogue and he unrolls the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is now upon me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed and to announce the year of the Lord's favor. And that was wonderful enough, but then he rolled up the scroll and this is what he said. The most amazing thing. Today, this scripture is being fulfilled in me. Whenever you and I open the Bible, the question should always be, how is this scripture being fulfilled in my life? And to answer that question, we, we have to see the Bible not as some inerrant word of God revealed long ago and in, 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 in the past and, and fixed for all time. We have to see it as that divine signal unfolding and, and ongoing and, and, and unending calling each of us, saying to us, you can become this. Christians today, we read the Bible often like we read the U.S. Constitution. Let me explain. Some people who read the Bible and the Constitution fall into what we would call textualists. Um, Textualists believe that there is a plain, fixed, objective meaning of the text. And they read the text according to what we would say is the letter of the law. And they ask the question, how was this text understood by the people who read it? They don't care about the intent of the writer. They don't care about any other meaning except what it says on the page. Textualists simplify the text. And they argue that It means what it says, and it says what it means. So whether you're talking about the constitutional right to bear arms or the biblical right to punish somebody by death, a textualist would say, the law is the law. These are unchanging. There are fewer people today who are textualists. More people tend to fall into the originalist camp. The originalists interpret the text based on what they believed the words meant when the writers wrote them. In this approach, we might think of it as the spirit of the law. Not the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. 
And they will say, times change, but these texts have an enduring meaning or intent that transcends time. Originalists will disregard any new factors, any new revelations, any new politics, anything that seems to be new data or information when they interpret the old texts. The Dobbs decision of 2022 overturning Roe v. Wade was an originalist approach. Originalists will ask, what does the original meaning or spirit of the text mean for us today? And so, for example, a Christian originalist today would, might say that homosexuality is incompatible with Scripture. But then many today in the evangelical tradition will say this, you can still be loved and you can still be accepted as long as you remain celibate. This is uh, an originalist approach, trying to honor the spirit of the text, but often it is discrimination camouflaged as faithfulness. Some people will fall into the camp called uh, the living document camp. And many mainline Christians today would identify with this particular way of interpreting. Call it the spirit of the law for our times. This living document interpreters would say, look, the world's changing. Uh, we have new data, new information, um, science. Uh, God's still speaking. Um, we have new insights. We have to take all this into consideration. And so they'll ask, how do we adapt the spirit of the text to apply to our changing world? And so people in this camp might be um, gladly affirm an American's right to bear arms. But they might say, maybe those with mental illness shouldn't have guns. Or maybe that right doesn't apply to semi-automatic weapons that can uh, annihilate large groups of people in mere seconds. Or Christians in this camp might point to uh, psychology or biology or sociology. And they would say, you know, we have some pretty good reasons now to, to look at the scripture and to say, you know, we have new ways of thinking of human sexuality or gender identity or cultural norms. How do you read the Bible? Is it the letter of the law approach, the spirit of the law, or the spirit of the law for our times? Can I tell you that Jesus gave us a fourth way, and it's a much better way. I like to think of it as the spirit of love. Jesus interpreted all of Scripture through the lens of the teachings of the Bible on love. This is always how Jesus read his Bible. In every teaching on Hebrew law, he taught that love must always transcend the law. Love for neighbor, love for the enemy, love for the stranger, love for yourself, love for God. In his most radical teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does some serious jujitsu when it comes to interpretation. There's this recurring little message he sends. You have heard that it was said long ago, but I say to you now. And he does this on multiple occasions. You have heard that it was said to the ancients, do not commit murder, but I say to you now. 
If you are so much as angry with a brother or sister, you too are liable to judgment. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you now, don't strike back against your enemies. You have heard that it was said about divorce, about adultery, about making false oaths, but I say to you now. And in all of his teachings, the divine call, the beacon to love, drove him to transcend the letter and the noise of the law. In his teaching, the divine signal calls through the noise of literalism, of textualism, to become more generous, more loving, more human, more just, more awakened to the divine. Over and over again, transcending and reinterpreting scripture through the lens of love. Which is why at the end of that radical sermon he says, I have come not to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come to fulfill them. How we read scripture determines how scripture is fulfilled in us. And Jesus read it through the spirit of love. That's how he taught what to emphasize and what maybe to de-emphasize for the sake of love. Beyond textualism or originalism, Jesus practiced this fourth way. And it came from his own tradition in the Jewish tradition called Midrash. It was this way of exploring scripture that said it could mean this, could mean that. But in the end, does it lead to love? It's a way of interpreting scripture that said, you have questions, uh, let's ask another question so that we can make our way toward the possibility of love. It was a way of responding to his critics' questions by answering a question as a gesture of love. But mostly it was just a way for Jesus to allow the beacon signal to bounce off the walls of his soul until his soul was stretched and expanded by love. Until the you could become this became in him that. Why the Bible? You heard Rev. Barb moments ago read from Psalm. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, but why is the word for so many Christians a laser pointer shining in the eyes of others? You heard Rev. Barb read moments ago, Jesus telling his disciples, I got a lot more to say to you, but you can't handle it now. There's more to be revealed, so I'm going to send the Spirit to do that work. Because God is still speaking. But too many Christians today close the book. And they close their hearts. And they close their ears. And they close their souls to the signal, the beacon, calling to them. You could become this. Why the Bible? The answer, I think, is simple. It's because we, like our ancestors, are still becoming. Becoming more generous. Becoming more human and just. More kind and alive and awakened to God. That's why. Our takeaways for today... The Bible is the word of God in the words of humans. 
And the word of God is the beacon that is drawing us back to the source. And the beacon is still calling us today to the way of love. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church or our vision to eradicate social isolation and disconnection by practicing the faithful presence of the incarnate Christ, please visit GoStAndrew.com. See you next week.